Lord God, we know that you purchased the church with the blood of your son. And therefore, we know the church is of immense value to you. And so we pray now that based on our value to you and based on your son's death and resurrection, that you would be so moved as to care for us, to uphold us, and to guide us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Recently, I joined 1,300 Christians in Kigali, Rwanda. It was for a gathering called GAFCON. I know GAFCON kind of sounds like the name of a spaceship. It stands for the Global Anglican Futures Conference. I'll tell you more about it in a minute. But at this gathering in Kigali, there were people there. They were all Christians from the Anglican tradition, 1300. And we represented 52 different countries. And if you would trace us back to the churches and dioceses and areas we came from, you would have found that this gathering of 1300 people represented 85% of the Anglican Christians in the world. So 85% of people who worship in the Anglican tradition. That may not seem like a big deal unless you know that there's actually 85 million people who worship in the branch of Christianity known as Anglicanism today in the world. They come from 165 different countries. It's a very global and broad church. So why did I go? Why did you, your vestry, and your wardens allow your rector to go to this? Well, we're an Anglican church. This is our global family, and I was asked to go, and I went to represent us as part of this global Anglican family. And why we met, or the reason for GAFCON, goes back a couple decades now. GAFCON started as a response to, to a crisis in the larger global Anglican communion, a crisis where leaders and institutions were beginning to teach things that were false, move away from the lordship of Jesus. And you might, you might think about it like this. Imagine for a moment you are part of a global food and drug agency, and your mission is to Make sure that millions of people are fed healthy things and given healthy medicine for the sake of their physical health. And you learn that there are higher-ups, leaders in your agency and institutions that are beginning to actually introduce poison into the food and into the medicine. And you know this will have catastrophic effects on people. So what would you do? Would you just be silent? GAFCON started in 2008, and I'll show you some pictures of it in a second. GAFCON, GAFCON started as a response to the spiritual malfeasance of different leaders in the Anglican church. People were veering away from sound teaching. They were leaving biblical orthodoxy. They were rejecting the lordship of Jesus as expressed by obe obeying his word. And so, people gathered. Here's a picture, if we can get it. I wonder if the guys in the back could help me with the slides. There you go. This is us in Kigali. Just leave it on this one for now. I think I can run it. 
This is us gathered in Kigali a couple weeks ago, April 7th to the 21st. This GAFCON meeting, it started actually, the first one was in 2008 in Jerusalem. Bishops gathered in Jerusalem with over a thousand people. So GAFCON has been a response to this drifting away from orthodoxy. And this is simply faithful Christians. We're all sinners ourselves. We're not showing up in triumphalism because we've had it all right. We just care about the gospel and people being able to receive Jesus. So faithful people have gathered and they sought the renewal of the global church first. And now we're moving from seeking renewal to what you might call thinking about resetting the church. We're wondering now if it's the fact that we have to rethink how structures are formed and how we relate to one another because there's significant leaders in the Anglican church who are unrepentant in the teaching of error, which is effectively, this isn't a gross overstatement, it is effectively introducing poison into the kitchen where children eat. And so that's why we gathered. That's why I was there. Our church wants to be part of this work. And I was very impacted by my time there. Very impacted. And as I was coming home, I was trying to think through what does it mean to be the rector of a local church just having had this global experience and how do I try to invite us into it? And I want to do that today because I believe the Lord is speaking to his larger church and to us at this moment. I'm coming home with three specific lessons. I'll lay these out in front of you that I think are for us in a moment. Um, but first, let me just try to connect a thread or draw a line from the Bible and the first century to Kigali, Rwanda in 2023. Let me just try to draw a line so you can see the scriptural, biblical reasons or explanation for what happened in Rwanda last week or two weeks ago. So what I want to show you is a theme in scripture that's simply this, the church is at the center. This will make sense in a moment. The church is at the center. So Coming out of Easter, we spent a few weeks talking about the resurrection of Jesus, right? And the last teaching Jesus gives in his resurrected body before he ascends to be with his Father in heaven, that last teaching is recorded in Acts chapter 1. And he addresses his disciples and he gives them a commissioning. And I want to read it to you. This is Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So Jesus is commissioning people to be witnesses to him, not an ideology, not a certain people, group, or age, witnesses to him to the ends of the earth. And as you, you read through Acts, you see this unfold. In Acts 2, the Spirit comes and the church is born. And you see Christians going further and further outwards from Jerusalem. Eventually, Acts ends with the Apostle Paul in Rome. Now, what's interesting is if you, you look at the movement in the first century, just from a historical standpoint, if you're a historian, not even a Christian, and you look at this movement and then you trace it on through the first century, you'd be surprised to realize that it's not so much What's exploding in the Mediterranean world in the first century is not so much a new set of ideas or a new philosophy that individuals can follow. What's exploding is a new community. All of a sudden you see this thing that in the Bible calls it a church cropping up everywhere. And this, this is a, it's a new way of doing community. It's people, Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, men and women coming together as family. It's like the birth of a new 
branch of humanity, a new race happening all across the Mediterranean world. It's called the church. The church is at the center of what God is doing. So let me just draw you a line from this birth of the church in Acts to us and to your rector going to Kigali. So let me draw you a line first from the words coming out of Jesus' mouth in Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. They travel into Peter's ears. Peter's sitting there, so they go into his ears. He then fulfills his calling, and he ends up not in Jerusalem, he ends up in Rome. We know that Peter was martyred there, but he helps establish what will become one of the great centers of Christianity in the early centuries in Rome, the great city of Rome. That church grows up, then its bishop in 597 named Gregory the Great, he meets a young boy who's an angle. He's someone from the south of England. And Gregory thinks, look at this little pagan. He doesn't know the Lord. And he gets a compassion for the people, the tribes in southern England. So he commissions a missionary named Augustine, not to be confused with Augustine of Hippo, a different Augustine. He says, go be a missionary. Take the gospel to the south of England. Augustine goes in 597 to reach the, the Angles and the Saxons. He finds Christianity is already there. He starts a missions base in Canterbury. It's said that he baptized 10,000 people on Christmas Day. That church from Canterbury then will become a historic center of Christianity in England and beyond. It'll be known as the See of Canterbury. The bishop who's there is known as the Archbishop of Canterbury. That church grows up. It begins to go around the whole world. This is why it's called the Anglican Church because it started with people who were Angles. Eventually, would you know it, that some of these people who have this faith from this branch of Christianity, they settle in Virginia. They decide to plant an Anglican church in Virginia. They call it the Church on the Way to the Falls. Probably it was on the way to a waterfall on the Potomac. This was in 1732. Eventually that church for short would just be called the Falls Church, Anglican. And the town that grew up around it would take its name from that church. This is our church. Our church would grow up over almost 300 years. We've been through our own complex relationship with the Anglican communion, wondering not just how do we stay connected to the Archbishop in Canterbury, but more importantly, we want to go past Canterbury back to St. Peter, back to the words coming out of Jesus' mouth, because that's what the Anglican church is rooted in, and we've striven to do that, and it's caused us to be on quite a journey. But that's a line, you see, from what Jesus says in Acts 1 verse 8, and me, your rector of the Falls Church Anglican, flying over to Rwanda to meet with Anglicans from all over the world. It shows us that Jesus' words in Acts 1-8 are being fulfilled. The gospel really is being taken to the ends of the earth. There's more work to be done. But there are now Anglican churches on a, in 165 different countries. So that's the first thing to see is simply that the, the church, our church included, is at the center of God's work. God's doing work all over, but friends, the church is at the center of it. But as you read on in Scripture, you realize this isn't the only thread. There's another thread that goes from the Bible to Kigali, and it's a more sinister thread. So if in Acts 1 you're hearing about the earliest events of the church, these are probably events that happened in 33, 34 AD, okay, in Acts 1 and 2. If these are the earliest recorded events of the church, the latest recorded events of the church in the Bible come up where? In Revelation. 
In Revelation 2 through 3, we actually hear Jesus instructing or speaking to the church again. And there's seven letters he gives. He writes seven letters to seven churches all across Asia. And these letters are probably from 80 or 90 AD. So a couple decades have passed. And when we read these letters, however, we begin to hear that along with the wonderful work of God of conversions and people all over the Roman Empire coming to Christ, we start to see that something other than God is at work in the church. We read in these seven letters in Revelation of false teachers, fading love, tribulations, poverty, verbal abuse. We read of the need to repent in the church. The church finds itself, you see, at the center of conflict. And then when you press a little deeper, In Revelation, you begin to see that the conflict isn't just failing human nature. There's someone else at work. Notice this. Jesus says to the church in Smyrna, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. He says to the church in Pergamum, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. To the church in Thyatira, he says, I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. In that passage, Jesus is comparing a false teaching about, a false teaching about sexual immorality with the deep things of Satan. So here's the point, the first point. Biblically, the the church is at the center of things. It exists in a spiritual vortex. But it's not just at the center of God's work, it's at the center of Satan's work. The church is at the center of God's work and Satan's war. So, what does this have to do with a bunch of Anglicans gathering in Rwanda to talk about a crisis in the church. Seeing this theme in the Bible should tell us that we should not be in the least bit surprised when we hear of the church growing in every nation because Jesus prophesied and commanded that it would. And at the same time, we should not be in the least bit surprised that regularly, consistently, the local church and global church meets with strife, division, false teaching, backsliding, errors, unrepentance. So when people gathered at GAFCON and you're celebrating the beauty of this global church, it was overwhelming, and then you're diving into talking about all the problems in the church, you should say, yeah, Anybody carefully reading the Bible would say, you're going to need a lot of gafcons. You just are. So, friends, the church is at the center of, the thing, of things, and the church is something we need to contend for. It's something that regularly we need to contend for. So that's why I went, that's why we're involved, because we know we can't just drift And what happens in the global church is probably stuff that's going to happen in our local church. And so there's lessons to be learned from them that I think are relevant for us. So let me turn now to some lessons I came home with that I think are for all of us. I just have three. I hope these will be encouraging 
to you. Um, the first lesson is that local disciples benefit from global Christianity. Local disciples, that's us, local disciples. We all do our discipleship mostly wherever we live. We benefit from global Christianity. So at the conference, um, we were given assigned seating, and our assigned seating, there, there were these numbers that, that put us in little small groups, which was great because otherwise you just would have picked small groups with people that were from where you're from, that you already knew. So I ended up in a small group with a bishop from Myanmar, a pastor from Australia, a pastor from England, um, a pastor and his wife from Nigeria, a pastor from Uganda. I think I have a picture of our small group here. And I, so this is my first point. I was so encouraged and challenged by bringing my Western Washington, D.C. Christianity into this global setting. You see, friends, Human beings are social creatures, and our context shapes us far more than we realize. So if you are living in a particular area in the West or a major city, what's going to happen is the local news stations here and what people here say is important, it will begin to shape our church's ministry, and the ministry of church can largely become reactionary to whatever the New York Times or Wall Street Journal tells us is the biggest issues. Now, this can be good and bad. Good because we ought to know what's going on, but bad because the local newspaper is never going to tell you how many people may have plunged into hell in the last year. It's not going to report that data. It's not going to tell you how many people are separated from their Savior. It's not going to tell you how much God is desiring for your neighbor to know that Jesus loves her. It's not going to tell you that stuff. And so what can happen if we're not careful with our localism is we can become nearsighted and we can have blind spots. So let me just share a few ways. When I, when I sit with this group and we turn and take prayer requests, can you imagine sitting with a bishop from Myanmar? He looks at you and he says, man, our church is so small. We have no money. Everyone's a Hindu around me, and the government hates Christianity here. So I'm like, so what's your prayer request? <laughs> it just puts things in perspective. So let me give you two, two examples of what happened with me with my local Christianity being shaped by global Christianity. So um, two speakers got up to share from London. Now, I, I'm interested when I hear people doing ministry in London because London's even more complicated than D.C. Some people say London is L.A., New York, and D.C. in one city, right? You got their entertainment, you got their finance, and you got their politics all in one place. It's a huge epicenter, very modern and progressive. So I thought, wow, what's going on in London? And these two pastors stood up and they shared about, of all things, evangelism. Like old-fashioned evangelism, like you share Jesus with people. And this is what blew me away. I have a hard time with evangelism. I'm shy. I struggle with the fear of man. But what they said was after COVID, they're finding that at least in London, and these are their words, one in four to one in five people who aren't Christians are open and willing to meet with a friend who invites them to coffee to look at Scripture. This is just what they're finding. So if you, it's one-on-one, -on -one, and they just train people in their church. They have this little thing called Word One-to-One. -one. I'm going to talk more about this in the fall. I'm actually going to try to bring them here. They, they said they have this little booklet that helps people look at Jesus in the Gospel of John, you know, not in your face at all. And they said they're finding that for people in London, about one in four to one in five of their friends will say yes to get coffee and look at Scripture. What that means, I think, is friends, 25% 
or at least 20% of your non-Christian friends are waiting for you. They're waiting for you to ask them to coffee to look at Scripture. That's unbelievable. That's, that's one thing that really, really shook me. The other thing was when a Sudanese brother in Christ shared. He was born in northern Sudan. Now, northern Sudan is very Muslim. Southern Sudan is very Christian. And he grew up in a radical Islamic family. His grandfather started the Islamic Brotherhood, where he is. These are just his words, his story. And he, he, he was raised to hate Christians, and he even went so far as doing violence to one. He had radical conversions. I, I won't go into the details. It's amazing. And then when he converted to Christianity, he shared that his, his family in his village, they held his funeral, and they went so far as burying an empty casket in a grave with his name on it, saying, you are dead to us. And he said he went and visited this grave by himself one, and once, and he wept because he felt so alone. And, but he had met Yeshua. He had met Jesus. So here's what he said to us. He looked out at all these Western Christians, and he said, listen, here's what I want you to know is that your churches have to be about more than entertainment. He said, they have to become family for people like me, people with the name Muhammad, who will lose our families in order to follow Jesus. He said, you need to be a welcoming family for Muhammad's, Ahmed's, and people from these backgrounds who lose everything to follow Jesus. So local discipleship benefits from global Christianity. So one thing you might do this week is there's a great website called Barnabas Aid. Just Google it, Barnabas Aid, and they have regular updates. It's like a little newspaper, a little online newspaper about things going on um, in the lives of Christians around the world. They often focus on persecution. It can be hard to read, but maybe once a week, maybe middle of your work day, instead of going on ESPN or the newspaper you're going to, click on that and read that news and pray for one of them. We pray for persecuted Christians every Sunday in our prayers. So let your heart be open to the global church. You'll benefit from it. So that's the first lesson. The second lesson is this. The church needs strong leaders. The church needs strong leaders. The, the failure of the Anglican communion is a failure of leadership. There's a reason why the Bible calls us sheep. We're followers. And where shepherds go really, really matters. And when your shepherds depart from the shepherd, it's really bad news. And I was struck by watching some of the key men and women who have led in the GAFCON movement. I was struck by watching them across the week, thinking of how different their leadership looks to what I'm seeing from other areas in Anglicanism right now. Other areas where there's equivocation, everything's vague, nothing's clear. It's almost like the church wants to be the chaplain to the world rather than hold up the banner of the gospel. And so there are these men called primates. I know these are weird words, but, but I'm going to show you their picture. Um, primate is the word for an Anglican leader over a province. This is a whole geographical area like the primate of Nigeria or Uganda or Myanmar or America. And these are the men who have stepped out and lost tremendous things, sacrificed greatly in order to courageously lead. And I want to tell you about one in particular, a man named Ben Kwashi. Ben and his wife Gloria are just unusual people. They're amazing people. They're from Los, Nigeria. And um, Ben Kwashi talks a lot about his experience of persecution. So he's um, ministered in an area with some, some radical um, 
radical Muslims who have attacked the church in different ways. I know not every Muslim is like that, but this is the, his experience. And he shares about his home being burnt to the ground in 1987. Then in 1988, a mob of 30 coming to his house, dragging him outside to execute him. He prays and he doesn't know why, but they didn't go through with it. Then he talks about how in 2006, another mob came and abused his wife and hit her so hard that she's, gone, she's blind in one eye. And, and I want you to hear the fiber of this couple. They, 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 they live in Los and they have 54 orphans who live with them. So here's him recounting what happened when their house burned down. They were supposed to be in it. It burns down and he tells his wife about it. Here's what's happened. He said, when our house burnt down, I took Gloria to see it. She said, you preach that heaven and earth will pass away. This approach has to start with you or your people will not believe it. And then he says, I put the ashes from the burnt house in a miniature coffin, and this goes everywhere with me. It speaks to me that I died on March 12th, 1987, when his house was burnt. And every day of life after this is extra time. He goes on to say, and this is the quote I have up for you. He says, I can truly say that Christians have become open to others through their own experience of suffering. And they find that the benefits of the kingdom of God outweigh their own suffering. All their apparent losses count for nothing. They have made up their minds to endure suffering, even if it leads to death. And the book about him is called Neither Bomb Nor Bullet, because he's been, he survived attempts on his life in different ways. Friends, I was reminded watching these leaders that one of the keys to how Jesus runs his church is that he appoints leaders for it. Ephesians 4.11, he gives pastors, teachers, shepherds, evangelists, and apostles. And these leaders then are marked by two qualities. On the one hand, godly character, and on the other hand, competence and courage in teaching. Character and teaching. So Paul says to Timothy, therefore an overseer, that's where we get the word bishop, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and able to teach. Paul says to Titus, he's setting Titus up to be the pastor in Crete. He says to Titus, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So here's the application on this lesson. The church needs strong leaders. We need to continue to be a church that raises them up. Pray for our fellows program. Pray we can get our Timothy program again. And most of all, and I'm asking this of you, I know you do this, please pray for your pastors. Pray for me. Look, there's no guarantee. There's no guarantee I won't make shipwreck of my life. I would be arrogant to assume otherwise. You think people who fall plan to? So pray for me. Pray for my character and pray that I will be a able, clear, and courageous teacher that I wouldn't be beholden to fear, fear of you or fear of the world as I teach. Pray for your pastors. One more lesson. This is the most important lesson. I saved it for last. Faithfulness to the Son of God is inseparable from faithfulness to the Word of God. You can't have the incarnate word while rejecting the written word. You can't. If you want Jesus, he comes with the Bible. 
The decisive issue for Anglicans worldwide and Christians everywhere is the same as it was during the Protestant Reformation. It's the authority of the Bible and its plain meaning. And there are more than one way, there's more than one way to undermine the authority of Scripture. There's overt ways, but there's more subtle ways. And I want to alert you to one subtle way. You will not hear high-level leaders in the Anglican communion outright reject the Bible's authority. You won't hear that. They won't outright reject the Bible's authority. Instead, they will more subtly undermine the Bible's clarity. They will undermine the Bible's clarity. Now, let me show you how this works. You'll realize you see this all the time. This works like this. You're trying to explain to a person a point that the Bible makes on a specific issue. You do your best, you're showing them the passage, and they look at you and say, that's great. It's just your interpretation. There's a lot of interpretations. And by the way, look at all the Christian denominations. Look at all the disagreements in the church. How can you possibly tell me that your interpretation is right? And once you establish that the Bible is not clear, you have effectively undermined its authority. Because its authority just lies in the experience of the reader. However, one people group or another people group wants to use it. So what I see happening in Anglicanism that concerns me greatly because I know it's all around us is an attack on the clarity of Scripture. Can you actually know what the Bible says? And we need a response to this. And let me suggest a few ways to respond. First, Responding to this kind of argument that, well, the Bible can't be interpreted, nothing's clear in it, experts, people with PhDs differ. To respond to that, first you should just notice a few false assumptions in this line of thinking. The first false assumption is this. If two experts disagree on something, that means we can't know what the truth is. That's simply not true. Pay attention to science or politics or economics or public health. Experts, people with PhDs, disagree on stuff all the time. I mean, a few years ago, I remember listening to a person argue with a PhD, an expert, that the most healthy diet was to eat no meat. And in the same week, I heard a brilliant man with a PhD argue that the healthiest diet is to eat only red meat. Now, if I were to deduce from that, well, I guess you can't know anything about what you should eat, that would be ridiculous. You see, when there's disagreements between experts in any field, what do you do? You do more hypotheses, you test things, you take time, you look at results, you study, you pay attention. And more often than not, in many cases, when two experts disagree, you can figure out which one was right and which one was wrong. And so when people say that Really smart people come down on different places of this view of the Bible. It does not follow that there's not a right view on that issue in the Bible. That's the first faulty premise. The second faulty premise is like it. And that premise goes like this. You know, if there's unclarity in one area in a field, then we can't assume there's clarity anywhere in a field, right? This would be like if a person said, and this is just the case, that, hey, look, Christians who are well-meaning, they can't come to certainty about baptism. There's just some Christians who believe you should baptize babies and some who believe you don't. And guess what, friends? We're going to be in heaven with both. And we're not going to know who's right till heaven. 
So there's Christians that we don't have, we know we're supposed to do baptism. We don't have total clarity on exactly how to do it. You could take the Lord's Supper. We know we're supposed to do the Lord's Supper. How often? Every week, every day, once a year? How about what does it mean? Is it Jesus' real body or is it just like a hallmark card of remembrance? There's views all in between. How about the end times when Jesus is going to return? We know he's going to come back to judge the living and the dead. When is it going to happen? What's going to happen before that? Christians really do not have certainty on the specificity in these areas. Now, if you were to say because of that, I don't think you can have certainty about anything in the Bible. You can't know if the resurrection happened. You can't have any idea what God means for marriage between a man and a woman. You can't know if Jesus is the only way. That would be an error. Just because there is doubt in one area of a field doesn't mean you can't have certainty in the rest. Just because you can't have perfect and complete knowledge of something doesn't mean you can't know a lot about it. I don't know how internal combustion works. I can still drive my car. I still know what oil goes in it. And I'm 100% clear about that. So when people walk around saying, well, there's all these different interpretations, therefore we can't know anything, it's a false premise. Say, what, what, do, you, what do you mean? What teaching? What verse? What point? What tradition? Okay, give me three days and I'll come back and let's talk about it. So that's the first thing to notice is that this is, this is what I see as the most common way to undermine the Bible right now is this, well, who knows? Everyone's got a different interpretation. We don't treat science like that. We don't treat medicine like that. So along with that, along with notice some of this false reasoning, we need to be clear, and I'm, I'm about to wrap up. I'm coming near the end, we, but this is so important. We need to be clear about what we mean when we say the Bible is clear. What do we mean when we say it's authoritative? Do we mean you can, you can ask the Bible what car you should buy and it's going to speak clearly? What do we mean? Um, the Anglican Catechism reads, Scripture should always be understood in ways that are faithful to its own plain meaning, to its entire teaching, and to the church's historical interpretation. It should be translated, read, taught, and obeyed accordingly. This says it should be understood according to its plain meaning. What does that mean? Where is it plain? And here's where you need to distinguish as a Christian the difference between seeing where the Bible speaks directly to something with total clarity, which it does in all matters needful for salvation or for living a godly life that honors the Lord. It speaks totally clearly. And areas where it's not speaking directly. It doesn't tell you what car to buy. It doesn't tell you what career path to choose. It does tell you that Jesus is the path you should choose. It does tell you that marriage is between a man and a woman, but it doesn't get overly specific in some areas. So we need to just have a sophisticated view of what we mean by the authority of Scripture. And we shouldn't be surprised, friends, when people say, well, there's parts of the Bible you can't understand easily. Peter knew that. In his second letter, he says the following of Paul's letters. Peter says some things in Paul's letters are hard to understand. Thank you, Peter. I feel the same way. But he, but he goes on to say, listen, he goes on to say, this is 2 Peter 3.16. He goes on to say, and the ignorant and unstable twist them. People leverage on these areas that take some work and they twist them. 
Friends, there is a method to read scripture that's careful. I won't say more about it now, but you need to know the Bible is crystal clear about so many things. It's not a vague document we can't know. Scripture may not tell you how to fix your car, but it's crystal clear about how to fix your soul. It may not tell you what career path to choose. It's crystal clear that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. It doesn't tell you who to marry, but it is crystal clear that God designed marriage to be between one man and one woman. And we need to have an appropriate pastoral response in a culture that's changing its views on that. But we, we can't act like the Bible isn't clear on these things. So to conclude, the Sudanese Anglican, I mentioned the convert from Islam, he looked at us, especially us Western Christians in the room, and he said, a Christianity that cost us nothing is not biblical. And I thought as I was flying home that a church that cost its members nothing is not the church for which Christ died. I'm so thankful. I'm, I'm as excited as I've ever been to be part of this church. I'm so thankful for you. We have a role to play in contending for the church. We have to do so humbly. We have to repent of our own sins, but we need to be listening to the global church. We need to be raising up strong leaders and we need to live upon the word of God. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for our global church family. We pray for them. We ask your mercy upon them and we recommit ourselves to you and we ask that we would be found faithful, Lord, and that we would be the church that can hold the gospel out to people who are desperate for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.